You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. First of all, last week I mentioned in referring to the foliage that was used in the Feast of Booths, I called them bows instead of boughs, and uh, I didn't catch that. My wife did. I was talking with uh, Dave Rich this last week, and he said, don't worry about it, I get him confused all the time too, which he just said, I think, to make me feel good. But uh, my wife did catch it, and so it should be boughs as in deck the halls with boughs of holly. But I don't deck any halls, so I had no idea how I should be using that. So it is bows and not bows. Uh, second of all, the uh, I mentioned in connection with the Feast of Booths that all of the activities that go on with the Jewish celebration, that was during Jesus' day. There was a lot of things that were connected to the Feast of Booths celebration in Jesus' day, which are not part of the Jewish Feast of Booths today and their celebration of it. I don't know if you noticed it, and I intended on showing this to you. Last week on the front of your bulletin, there was a picture of a shack, and that was a, a picture of a modern-day booth built in modern-day Jerusalem taken by somebody here in our congregation uh, when they were in uh, Jerusalem. So they still build the temporary shelters out on their patios and in their port- courtyards and such. But there are things that they do not do. For instance, they don't do any of the animal sacrifices today when they celebrate the Feast of Booths. And they don't do the water libation, which was the pouring out of the water and the wine over top of the sacrifice. And they don't do any of the lighting ceremonies. Do you know why those things are not part of the Jewish celebration of the Feast of Booths today? Because in Jerusalem, they don't have a temple. They don't have a temple in Jerusalem, so they don't do any animal sacrifices today. They don't light up the temple because there is no temple. And since they don't do animal sacrifices, they don't do the pouring out of the water and the wine. So the Feast of Booths and what we covered last week is really the backdrop of chapter 7. So let's jump into it. We're picking up our study in verse 3. As we leave chapter 6 of John, we get this sort of haunting, foreboding sense that the hostility to Jesus is growing and it's increasing. We leave chapter 5, and chapter 5 is a conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees, and we've come to expect that there is conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders of the nation of Israel. And chapter 5 is that conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders. Chapter 6 shows us the hostility just amongst the common people. They fawned over him and adored him so long as he was providing things for them. But when he made his claims clear and his demands clear, they walked away. And it was an act of hostility, not just apathy, but hostility. They rejected him. So we see the hostility among the religious leaders in chapter 5. We see the hostility among the the common people, the crowds, in chapter 6. And then when we get to chapter 7, we see that there was rejection and hostility even among his family members, among his brothers. And this becomes chilling As we start chapter 7, we find that even amongst those who knew him best were those who did not believe upon him. They rejected him. So we pick it up in verse 3. Leading up to the Feast of Booths in Jerusalem, Jesus has a conversation with his brothers. And this happens in the northern regions in Capernaum. And they say to him in verse 3, Leave here and go into Judea so that your disciples also may see the works which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers were believing in him. 
Now you'll notice that John mentions at the beginning of verse 3, he says, therefore, and that connects verse 3 to verses 1 and 2. There are two important details in verses 1 and 2 which sort of lead up to this conversation and begins in verse 3. Those two important details were, number one, Jesus was spending those six months between chapter 6 and 7 up in the northern regions of Galilee. That's an important detail. He was doing that because the Jews in Jerusalem were seeking to kill him. That's the second important detail. The Jews in Jerusalem were seeking to kill him, and Jesus was hanging out in the north, away from the Jews who were seeking to kill him. And the Feast of Booths was near. With all of that in mind, the Jews want to kill him, Jesus is avoiding the Jews, and the Feast of Booths is near. It is for those reasons that his brothers say to him, Why don't you go down into Judea and show yourself to those who are there? Perhaps your disciples then will believe on you. Who were his brothers? This is not the first time that we've mentioned John's or Jesus's brothers in the Gospel of John. Do you remember the? It was mentioned the, these brothers were mentioned back in chapter two, verse twelve. It was after or around the feast of Passover before Jesus went to Jerusalem. After he turned the water into wine, John says, and this after this he went down to Capernaum. He and his mother and his brothers and his disciples and they stayed there a few days. So presumably these brothers that are mentioned in John two. These are the same brothers mentioned now in John 7, and those brothers were with him in Cana of Galilee. So presumably they at least saw or at least had heard of him turning the water into wine, so they were familiar with his miracles. They, of course, were familiar with his claims. These four brothers, though they're not mentioned in John, are mentioned in other the other Gospels, the Synoptic Gospels. Matthew chapter 13, verse 55 mentions that Jesus had four brothers. Now, if you come from a Roman Catholic background, you know instantly that the Roman Catholic Church teaches that Mary was a perpetual virgin even after her marriage to Joseph and after the birth of Jesus. And they say that Mary didn't have any more children after that, even though the Gospel writers named brothers. But the Roman Catholic Church says they weren't brothers. They should be translated cousins. And the word doesn't mean cousins. The word means brothers. Jesus had four brothers. James, Joseph, Simon, and a Judas, or one that is called Jude. And it's not the same Judas mentioned at the end of chapter 6, who was one of his disciples. Judas was a common name, so this is a different Jude. Four brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Jude. Now, we don't know too much about Simon and Joseph. In fact, I don't even know if from the New Testament we know if those two boys became believers after the resurrection. At this point, all four of his brothers are unbelieving. John says that in verse 5. His brothers, at this point, were unbelieving. But we do know some things about James and Jude, those two brothers. We know that both James and Jude became believers after the resurrection of Jesus. Up to that point, they did not believe that Jesus was who he claimed to be, but after the resurrection, they came to understand that their half-brother Jesus was indeed who he claimed to be. God in human flesh, sent from the Father, the divine Son, the Messiah of Israel. They came to that understanding, but not till after the resurrection. And both James and Jude wrote books which are contained in our New Testament. James was written by James, Jude... You guessed it was written by Jude. Those two books which bear their names were written by those two half-brothers of Jesus, James and Jude. So that's what we know about his brothers. And they were saying to him, now why don't you go down into Judea and show yourself to your disciples? Now James and Jude had to have known, we would assume, that those in Judea wanted to kill Jesus. Did they know of the Jews' intention to kill their half-brother Jesus? If they didn't, I would think that they're very ignorant, or at least very, very oblivious to the truth, because it seems that if the Jews were trying to keep their intentions to kill Jesus secret, it was one of the worst kept secrets ever. You look down at verse 25, even the crowd in Jerusalem said, is this not the man whom they're seeking to kill? Even the common people gathered in Jerusalem knew what the intention of the Jewish leadership was. It was to kill Jesus. We can assume that the disciples of Jesus understood what the Jews' intention was. 
But in, we, I think it would also be safe to assume that his brothers would have known what the intention of the Jews toward Jesus was, that they were going to kill him. So now we have to ask the question, why would his brothers suggest to Jesus to go right down into the very city in which they knew that if the Jews had their way, they would seize him and kill him? Why would his brothers suggest that? Do you ever wonder that as you're reading through that? That's what I was wondering. Now, I have to assume the best of his brothers. This is what I would do. I would assume that his brothers, look, let's try, let's try the worst first. The worst we could say about them is that they knew of the hostility, they knew of the intention of the Jews, and they were simply turning their brother over to them and trying to get him to go down in there. That would be if we assumed the worst, and I'm not sure we can assume the worst. I think we ought to assume the best and be able to at least say that his brothers had, the best thing we could say, a reckless disregard for his safety. Because they would have known that the intention of the Jews was to kill their brother, and yet they are suggesting to Jesus, why don't you go down into Judea and show yourself to your disciples? And they are asking him to go down and to do a miracle there. His brothers, I think, knew of the intention, but it, they seem to have a disregard for his safety, or at least a lack of con- concern for his safety, that Jesus would go down into Judea and possibly get killed, because they knew what the intention of the Jews was, that it was to kill him. And so they say to him, go down in Judea. Now he's hanging up in the north, Galilee. Go down into Judea and show yourself to your disciples. If you're doing these things, go down and show these things to the world. Now who are the disciples that he, that John is mentioning or that the brothers are mentioning? Who are those disciples? They're not the twelve. They're not the twelve because we know from Matthew, Mark, and Luke that the twelve were with Jesus in Galilee during this whole six months. The twelve were with him there, including Judas. So he's not talking about the twelve disciples. I think he might be referring, they might be referring to one of two groups of people. Either the brothers are talking about those who believed on Jesus who were down in the southern regions of Judea. We know from John chapter 2 that many in Jerusalem believed on him when they saw the signs that he was doing. John chapter 2, I think it's verse 23 and following, 23, 24, and 25. There was a group of people in the south who were still followers of his or considered themselves to be disciples of Jesus. So it may be that his brothers are saying, look, Go down south and show yourself to the disciples or those who still believe on you in the south. All of those who had believed on him in the north had departed back in chapter 6, verse 66. It's also possible a second group of people that the brothers have in mind is that group that departed from him in 6, verse 66. It may be that what they are saying is this. Look, everybody now is down at the Feast of the Booths in Jerusalem. And so since everybody is there, you need to go down there and you will find all of those people who left you six months ago. And if you do another sign like you did on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, you might find them drawn back to you. You might be able to sort of make up some lost ground, regain some of those disciples that you lost six months ago. That may be what they're referring to. And it may be that they're referring to the disciples that had left him earlier. And they're simply saying, look, this is a perfect opportunity for you to gather them back together. They've left you. You're left with these 12 guys. Go down to Jerusalem and maybe the crowds will start following you again if you do some spectacular sign in Jerusalem like you did on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. That may be what they're saying. And they challenge him to go down south into Judea. And look at verse 4. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. Now this really gets at the motivation behind what they are, what they are doing. Keep in mind, as we, as we read of their suggestion to Jesus, they are not motivated by his best interest. Verse 5 says they were unbelievers. So it's a heart of unbelief. It is a hard heart of unbelief that is motivating everything that they are saying. John's telling us that. Everything we read here, we have to understand that they are motivated by unbelief. And so they say to him, and this is really what they're suggesting, no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. What do they mean by that? Jesus, you are aspiring to the highest office in the land. You call yourself the Messiah. Now that's not a private office. 
the Messiah was the highest office possible. This is, this is their way of thinking. You're ascribing to yourself messianic credentials, messianic names, messianic titles, and a messianic office. This is the highest, most public office possible. The Messiah is to rule over the nations. If you are the Messiah, you are going to have to gather all men to yourself. And you are going to have to receive the worship of all men. And receive the trust and obedience of all peoples. And you are going to have to demonstrate yourself publicly to everybody. You are going to have to be publicly enthroned and publicly worshipped and publicly hailed and publicly supported. You are ascribing to yourself the highest, most public, most visible position possible. You are claiming to be the Messiah. And they're charging him with inconsistency. If that's what you claim to be, how is it now that you stay up here in Galilee and do everything in secret? Now, just to be clear, Jesus was not doing things in secret. And that is to say, he wasn't hiding in caves and putting on disguises and, and running around in the dark shadows from place to place. It, that's not what he meant by secret. What they meant was, look, you are as far away from the public stage as you could possibly be in Galilee. You want to get onto the public stage, you need to go south to Judea, to Jerusalem. And all men from all nations are there. They've all gathered from all over the world. So go down there where everybody is watching and everybody can see you and demonstrate to everybody there who you are. It doesn't make any sense to claim to be the most public figure ever and yet to be hiding in Galilee just because they're seeking your life. So they're charging him with inconsistent. What you're doing seems inconsistent to what you're claiming. So go down into Jerusalem and there you will demonstrate your works. Since they say, verse 4, or if, if you do these things, show yourself to the world. If, that really should be translated since because that's the sense of it. That's the sense of it since you do these things. It was the, if you're doing these things, which you are, which means that they knew of his miracles, they knew of his signs, they knew of his claims, they knew of what he was claiming of himself, and they knew of all the things that he had done. We can presume that the disciples had at least heard, or sorry, his brothers had at least heard of the multiplying of bread and fish on the seashore, that his brothers had knew of and at least heard of the turning of water into wine. All of his miracles had been publicly done. He had healed thousands. He had cast demons out of people. He had, by this point, done all of these public signs. His brothers knew of it, and they're saying, since you do these things, which you do, we recognize that you're doing the signs, yet notice that his brothers did not believe upon him. But since you're doing these signs, go down into Judea and do them there. Show yourself to the world. How would he be showing himself to the world in Judea? The Feast of Booths was one of the three feasts where Jewish men from all over were required to be in Jerusalem. You would have Jews there from Rome, you would have Jews there from Egypt. You would have Jews there from the entire known world. They would be arriving in Jerusalem for that feast, for the celebration of that feast. There was no more public stage possible than Jerusalem at the time of the Feast of Tabernacles. This was the great feast. And their brothers, his brothers are saying, since you are going to gather all men to yourself, and since you're doing these signs, you need to go and seize a spot on the most public stage possible, and show your signs to the entire world. What they are asking him to do, or suggesting that he do, is some massive demonstration of his power and ability before everyone, so that everyone would be convinced that he is the Messiah. That's what they're suggesting. A massive demonstration of his power and ability. Go down into Jerusalem, and why don't you multiply bread and fish in the temple for everybody, like you did on the Sea of Galilee? Or maybe you could raise a dead relative from the, de- from the grave of one of the leaders of the Sanhedrin, or maybe raise a relative of the high priest or something. Do some massive thing, some big demonstration. Show them all your signs. Show them your power and ability. Show them who you are. Then the people will believe on you. Now, is that true? What have we learned about signs from the Gospel of John? 
They cannot create belief. They cannot make somebody believe. They cannot convince anybody. Because unbelief is never due to a lack of evidence. It is due to a love for darkness. Jesus said that back in chapter 3. So why don't you go down now, and everything that they're saying, verse 5, is motivated by their unbelief. That's a chilling statement. It's a chilling statement, especially on the heels of chapter 6. What did we find out of chapter 6? The multitudes left him, and he's left with how many men? Twelve. And one of those is a what? Is a devil, traitor, betrayer. And now we find out at the beginning of chapter 7, not even his brothers were believing in him. Not even his brothers were believing in him. That, by the way, is a mark of authenticity in John's gospel. And this is just on an, as an aside. This is sort of a little extra credit thing here, no extra charge for this. It's a mark of authenticity, and the gospels are filled with statements like this. Listen, why did John, let me show you how it's a mark of authenticity. Why did John write his gospel? So that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Now, if you were John and you were fabricating a story, and you wanted people to believe this person, this figure that you're sort of creating myths and legends around, if you're John and you want people to believe your story, you would never include a detail like this. Why? Because what you are saying is the people who grew up with him, who knew him best, did not believe him. Well, you're writing your gospel so that people will believe. Why would you share a detail like that? That even his brothers did not believe upon him. That's a mark of authenticity. It's kind of like uh, how all the gospel writers record that women were the first eyewitnesses to the resurrection. It's not that I have anything against women, but the fact of the matter is that in the first century, women were not considered reliable eyewitnesses to anything. So for Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John to record that the women were the first eyewitnesses to the resurrection would discredit them in the eyes of everybody who would read those gospels. You would never include a detail like that unless it were true, because it's an embarrassing detail. Likewise, for John's purpose, this is an embarrassing detail, verse 5. That his brothers did not believe in him? That those who knew him best? That those who grew up with him did not believe upon him? That's an embarrassing detail. So what do we learn or what can we glean from verses 3 through 5 and the unbelief of his brothers? What are some points of application? Let me offer to you a few of them. First of all, this is an, an, another chilling testimony to the hardness of men's hearts. You notice that? The hardness of men's hearts. His brothers had grown up with the sinless Son of God. They had been raised with a sinless brother who knew no sin, who did no sin. They heard him say from a very young age that he had to be about his father's business, and he was about his father's business. They had heard of his miracles. They had seen his miracles, some of his signs. They heard him teaching. They heard of his claims to be the sinless Son of God, the divine Son. They heard of his claims to be sent from the Father. They heard of his claims to be the Messiah of Israel. They had all of those spiritual privileges, and yet his brothers remained hardened in unbelief. It is proof again of what we read in verse 44 and verse 65, that no one can come to Christ unless the Father who sent them draws, sent him draws them. Why is it? Their hearts remain hardened in unbelief, even in the presence of all of that light. Because... Unbelief is never due to a lack of evidence. If anybody had evidence, it was who? It was his brothers. They had evidence. They had lived and eaten and walked and slept in the same house as and done housework and worked in the shop with the sinless Son of God. And yet they remained hardened in unbelief. And that leads to a second point of application. Spiritual privileges, friends, do not convert anybody. Spiritual privileges do not convert anybody. If anybody was privileged spiritually, it was the brothers of Jesus. And yet they remained hardened in unbelief all the way up until the resurrection. 
Because you can grow up in a Christian home and you can be baptized as an infant and you can hear the preaching of the Word and you can see genuine worship and you can be exposed to truth. And you can hear the Word read and you can be grow up in a Christian home with the regular devotions and regular truth being poured in upon you. You can see the best of Christian lives and the holiest of individuals laid out right in front of you and yet you can remain hardened in unbelief because spiritual privileges do not make any man or any woman a believer. In fact, sometimes spiritual privileges can actually lead to the hardening of our hearts because we've become inoculated to the truth. We're exposed to it so much that we become hardened to it. Spiritual privileges do not make anybody a Christian. Third, Unbelief of your friends and family is not necessarily your fault. If you've ever been around your friends and your family and maybe you live with somebody or you work with somebody or you grew up with somebody who you have witnessed to and you have shared the Lord with and you have uh, you have demonstrated a holy life before them and you have walked before them in truth and integrity and they've seen your lifestyle and you've prayed for them and you've shared truth with them and you've bent over backwards to do all of that. Sometimes when that's the case and yet they remain worldly and unbelieving, you and I are very apt to think, that their unbelief is due to some fault in our lifestyle or some fault in our witness. And you and I not, ought not to make that assumption because that is not necessarily true. It is not necessarily true. If your relatives or your friends or your coworkers or your brother or sister or your spouse remains unbelieving, it may very well be that it has nothing at all to do with any fault in your character. Look to Jesus. Do you think his brothers remained unbelieving because of any fault in his witness or his character? Any flaw in his testimony? Any flaw in his ability to communicate truth? No. If Jesus can live with his brothers for 18 years and yet they remain hardened in unbelief, how is it, is it not possible that you might be able to live with somebody or know somebody or share the truth with somebody for an equal period of time and yet they remain hardened in unbelief? Sure, it's possible. You ought not to assume that just because you've witnessed to somebody and they haven't received Christ that it has anything to do at all with the flaw in the mouthpiece. Because it may not be a flaw in the mouthpiece. It may very well be that it just has to do with the hardness of the human heart and their love for darkness. And then there is a fourth application, I think, from this passage, and that is that we see here Jesus facing the hostility of his brothers and unbelievers. This is what the author of Hebrews meant when he said that Jesus was in all points tempted as we are. He faced the hostility of sinners like you and I do. And here we see his own brothers unbelieving. His own brothers suggesting that he go down to Jerusalem where they knew there was danger. He faced the unbelieving hostility of men and women of sinners, and he did it with grace, and he did it with love, and if he can do it, then guess what? You can do it. You can do it. And don't presume that their remaining unbelief or their hardened unbelief has anything to do with the flaw in your testimony. You face the hostility of sinners knowing that Jesus Christ endured the same. We have a sympathetic high priest who knows exactly what we have gone through. Well, that is the expression of unbelief from his brothers. Go down into Jerusalem, show yourself to the world, Demonstrate on the biggest stage ever who you are, who you claim to be, and maybe then they will believe in you. They have um, really misconceptions of two things. First, they misunderstood the office of the Messiah and what Jesus was sent to do because they had a view of the Messiah like the crowd in John 6, right? Make him king. Make him public. They didn't understand that Jesus, as the Messiah, did not come to rule the nations in his first coming. He will do that a second time around but not the first time. The first time he came to give his life as a ransom for many. And the second thing that they misunderstood was the nature and the power of signs to convince. Why would his brother suggest that the Jewish leadership would believe if he did signs when they didn't believe when he did signs? They saw his signs and didn't believe. And yet they're naive enough to think that if he goes to Jerusalem, that those in Jerusalem will believe. 
at the signs. But signs cannot create faith. They cannot produce belief. They are unable to do that because the issue behind belief is a love for darkness and not a love, uh, a love for darkness and not a lack of evidence. All right, let's pray together and we'll conclude. Our Father, we are thankful to you that you have delivered those of us who have come to Christ from our love of darkness, that you have opened our, high, our eyes and enlightened our hearts and drawn us to yourself. We thank you again for this reminder that our Lord can sympathize with us in our weaknesses and in our frailties. He knew what it meant to eat bread with those who then lifted up their heel against him. He knew what it meant to face unbelief and hostile criticism and and mockery even from those who were closest to him and knew him best. And so we are thankful, O oh God, that you have taken upon ourself on yourself our infirmities and our weaknesses and that you can sympathize, that you know them, and you know them well. And we pray, O oh God, that we would keep this in mind and, and make us mindful of the fact that you are using us to reach those around us for the gospel and keep us faithful in that task, that you might be glorified and that you might be pleased to draw many people to yourself through our testimony. Help us to be faithful and to never worry about the results. May you be glorified now through our time as we spend in fellowship together, in, in a meal and in uh, fellowship around your Son, that you might be pleased with your people, you might be glorified through and around us. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.